Okay. Let's get this party started. Take five. I'm Father Timothy Matkin. Welcome to Matins. This is number 29. And uh, today we're going to begin talking about a book called Rome's Tribute to Anglican Orders. Before we get in that, if you want to communicate with me, please do so. You can email me at frmatkin at priest.com. You can also comment down below on YouTube. And uh, by the way, we'll put the link to the book in the show notes. So if you want to read along uh, with me or go back and look later on, the link is there uh, to archive.org. Um, we also want to have an opening prayer, the wonderful prayer from uh, Archbishop Laud that's included in the prayer book. Uh, it's number, let me see which one it is, number, number two for the Universal Church. Let us pray. O gracious Father, we humbly beseech Thee for Thy holy Catholic Church, that Thou wouldst be pleased to fill it with all truth in all peace. Where it is corrupt, purify it. Where it is an error, direct it. Where in anything it is amiss, reform it. Where it is right, establish it. Where it is in want, provide for it. Where it is divided, reunite it. For the sake of Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord. Amen. And we're always called to pray for the church, so do keep uh, the church in your prayers in every aspect of its life, its successes and its failures and so on. Um, so as I said before, we'll, we'll start reading through the book called Rome's Tribute to Anglican Orders by Montague Butler, uh, the Reverend Montague Butler, um, author of a number of other books on various kinds of Christians and so forth. I don't know his background. The subtitle of the book is A Defense of the Episcopal Succession and Priesthood of the Church of England, founded on the testimony of the best Roman Catholic authorities. So this is, come, this is published in 1893. Uh, Apostolic Cure, I think, is 1896. And then maybe a year or two after that, uh, Sapius Officio from the uh, Archbishops of Canterbury and York, which are the response or the reply uh, to the Pope's uh, papal bull. Um, and I had been thinking about doing this for uh, some time, ever since uh, the book was first brought to my attention by, uh, I hope I'm saying his name right, Brandon Letourneau, something like that. I apologize if it's not quite uh, pronounced correctly. Um, but it's a, it's really a fascinating, amazing book. It, it points out how all over the place um, the treatment of Anglican orders was before uh, the judgment of Pope Leo XIII in Apostolic Cure. And even then it's been um, spotty in a, in a couple of places and, and inconsistent. Um, but basically today, all, uh, for example, Anglican priests that convert um, and become Roman Catholics are absolutely ordained, although some have been conditionally ordained. Um, but even there, there doesn't seem to be much rhyme or reason as to consistency about the issue. It just kind of depends on um, who you are and what the circumstance is, rather than the, uh, the pedigree, as it were. Um, but we'll take a look at this to, to kind of get a feel of um, what the history and treatment of the subject is before we get to the judgment of Apostolic Cure, which seems to kind of come out of nowhere. At least that's the impression that the archbishops give. But certainly the, the issue has been around for some time. 
Um, but anyway, we'll just dive in and take a look. And like I mentioned, I wanted, wanted to touch on this for some time, but I think what really brought it to the front was uh, Taylor Marshall's reaction to uh, um, uh, our Bishop Baker um, celebrating uh, the Eucharist at uh, St. John Lateran. And um, it being St. John Lateran, that was uh, a big deal and probably unusual, but it hasn't been unusual for Anglican pilgrims to be uh, able to celebrate at various shrines all over Europe and uh, the Holy Land and so on. And not only the Roman Catholics have been uh, very gracious, uh, but also various Orthodox churches in terms of lending altars and spaces for worship for pilgrims and so on. So we always appreciate those kinds of uh, gestures uh, out of charity. Um, but I've never seen him so butthurt. Um, I mean, it was kind of embarrassing. The guy needs to grow up. I thought he was more mature than that. Anyway, let's look at chapter 1, or section 1. Um, and here... Um, well, back up, the prefatory note. Um, so this didn't begin as a book. It began as a uh, magazine uh, special um, in the Indian Church Quarterly Magazine in the year 1889. It was first printed. Um, what, 89? Yeah, 89, okay. But 93 is when it was published, and 96 is when Epistel Kikuri comes out. Um he says, uh, various works have appeared from time to time proving the validity of Anglican orders from the Anglican standpoint. A very handy little volume on the subject is furnished in Canon Churton's Defense of the English Ordinal. For a more exhaustive treatment on the subject, such a work as the Reverend Arthur Haddon's Apostolical Succession in the Church of England may be consulted with advantage. The present little publication adopts an exclusive method of producing the concurrent testimony of learned members of the Roman communion, respecting the facts which Anglican writers have upheld. So they're not going to touch on any Anglican defense of Anglican orders, only Roman defense of Anglican orders in this book. To the Reverend uh, Dr. F. G. Lee's interesting volume, The Validity of Holy Orders in the Church of England, the compiler is indebted for some valuable testimonies, while his attention has been drawn in part by the same work to many other sources of information, and he desires to gratefully acknowledge the important aid which has been personally afforded him in his researches by the Reverend G. H. Loss Lewin and other members of the priesthood, both English and Roman. Section 1. Since the commencement of the great Catholic revival in England, an increased sense among the Anglican clergy of their true position um, true, true position and responsibilities appears to have been a main incentive to spirited action in defense of their church and her sacramental ordinances. As is well known, one of the chief weapons in use against the English church has been that by which from time to time certain members of the Roman communion have endeavored to strike at the root of her existence as a true part of the Church of Christ. We refer to that oft-reiterated statement of such persons, whether from ignorance of her past history or lack of charity, that the English Church can, t can claim no succession of ministry from the Holy Apostles, and therefore 
has naught but spurious sacraments. But one of the most hopeful tokens in our times of a more general approach to reunion of Catholic Christendom lies in the increase of that charity which hopeth all things, now exhibited by members of the different Episcopal communions toward one another. The godless bigotry of but comparably a few years ago has given place to better feelings. And remember, this is the 1890s. A lot lot has improved since then. And markedly is this shown in the attitude assumed by many members of the Anglican and Roman communions toward one another. The hateful spirit which rejoiced in such a term as papistry, with an offensive connotation, as applicable to the Roman system, is dying out. And as kindness begets kindness, the ugly title heretic is but seldom given by Roman Catholics to English churchmen. We even find that the opprobrious use of the term Protestant is less frequent than formerly. And from mutual courtesies we have passed, thank God, to a more gentle, spirited, and candid inquiry on either side into our true position and teachings. The result has not led to English churchmen as a body to to a conviction that they can yet enter into corporate communion with Rome, nor the present Pope to define that we are in possession of a true place in the communion of God's Holy Church. But there are, unquestionably, many signs of the times which give hope of a closer approach to the possibilities of general reunion of Christendom. And as as an aside, I would interject that probably... um, the mid-90s, uh, whenever it was that Pope John Paul II visited England there, uh, was probably the, the high point of um, hopefulness for reunion. And then with the advent and the ordination of women in England, it was kind of all downhill from there. If ever Christians draw nearer to each other, as everything invites them, wrote the learned ultramontane Count Joseph de Mastre in 1817, It seems that the movement must start from the Church of England. We are too far off, but the Anglican Church, which touches us with one hand, touches with the other those whom we cannot touch, which I thought was an interesting way to put it. The Rev. A. Saunders Dyer speaks of the Association for the Promotion of the Unity of Christendom, as having had on its roll in 1868 no less than 1,881 Roman Catholic members, in addition to those belonging to the Church of England, the Oriental, and other communions. It is said that this society was condemned by a decree of the Inquisition in 1864. But notwithstanding this, we find the Rev. A. H. Hoare, in his Church and No Church, published in 1873, reporting the society as continuing to enlist Roman Catholic members of distinction. It sustains to this day its characteristic of combining members of the Catholic bodies in a league of prayer. The Church of England's possession of the Catholic heritage is a subject of increasing interest to the authorities of the ancient communions of the East. Arsenius, a metropolitan of Thebius, not sure how to say that, came to England in 1716. And from this visit originated negotiations which were carried on for several years between the Scottish and non-juring bishops and the Eastern patriarchs. 
a scheme was submitted by Arsenius to the Tsar and approved by him, but unfortunately the non-jurors raised difficulties. About the same time, negotiations for reunion were attempted by Barkman, I have no idea how to say this, Voutiers, Archbishop of Utrecht, according to a plan suggested by the Sorbonne faculty, but the proceedings were quashed by the infamous Cardinal Dubois, Archbishop of Cambrai. There's a lot of these names, like especially French names and so on, that I'm going to have trouble with, by the way. In the present day, the probability which lies nearer to realization seems to be that of intercommunion between the English and the Eastern churches. And that was very much the talk of the day in the 1800s, when when, uh, the ecumenical movement was kind of just getting started. In 1866, a certain Dr. Overbeck stood forth as an enthusiastic champion of Eastern Orthodoxy and dealt with the whole question. But the tone which he adopted in his volume is so overbearing that he could scarcely, in fairness, expect Anglicans to accept his leadership or his own particular proposals as to the terms of their intercommunion with the Church of his adoption. However, when the bonds have been eventually cemented with our Eastern brethren, the Roman Church may herself be drawn to offer acceptable terms for a yet more extended and glorious union. The doctrine of Augustine, wrote the eloquent Oration Pierre Gratry in 1870 to the Archbishop of Malines, is the doctrine of Bousset. He speaks ever of the authority and consent of the universal church. But how comes it that a German theologian should have made St. Augustine speak of the Roman church alone, what he spoke of the church universal, the church at large? Or why should he, in a quotation from St. Ambrose, have substituted the words Roman church for the word Italy, our treasure is Christ, his gospel, the sacraments he has left us, and the promise of eternal life. Fear not, then. Seek this life eternal. You all know the way. In every humble village of every Christian land, the priests of Jesus hold the keys of the church into which you may enter, and there lean as the beloved apostle on Jesus' breast. Today, the dependents of one of the apostles say, or sorry, the Yeah, the dependents, that's kind of strange, I thought descendants. The dependents of one of the apostles say, he is all, the other apostles are nothing. But rest assured, this trial, as others, will turn out for good. Men will come from the east and the north, and long-parted brethren will, with us, seek a new west. Learning and sound criticism will purify the corrupt vessel. The treasure will remain." It's interesting to note that the late Bishop of Lincoln wrote to Archbishop Tate stating that he had received a communication from Rome that some of the bishops at the Vatican Council, who apprehended evil results from the promulgation of the dogma of the personal infallibility of the Bishop of Rome, would be very thankful for the moral support of the Anglican Episcopate. Section 2, or Chapter 2. It is well worthy of remark that the Roman Church has never publicly and authoritatively defined that Anglican orders are invalid. Of course, this was 1893. That did happen 
1896. Opportunity was afforded when the subject of the character and position of the Anglican Episcopate was brought before the fathers assembled in the Council of Trent, but no decision upon it was arrived at. As a matter of in fact, there's a lot of things that Trent couldn't figure out, like the position of the Pope and the infallibility or not, or so on. Anyway, we might add, as a matter of fact, it is alleged that they distinctively refused to pronounce the English bishops to be no bishops. We may add that any direct adverse pronouncement would have been impossible, owing to the ridiculous position in which it would have placed the then reigning pope. He had invited the English prelates as bishops, in other words, not as uh, ecumenical observers or something like that. So he invited the English prelates as bishops to join in the deliberations of the council. In 1561, he sent a nuncio to Queen Elizabeth, quote, to notify that the Council of Trent, which had been interrupted, would be continued in the same place, and to desire her to send thither some English bishops. The abbot uh, Martengo, who was charged with the commission, arrived in Flanders, and sending for leave to pursue his journey into England, could never obtain it, whereupon the nuncio at Paris prayed Throckmorton to write to the queen, who coldly answered, She heartily desired an ecumenical council, but a popish one would never honor, she would never honor with an ambassador, that she had no business with the bishop of Rome, who had no more power than any other bishops. End quote. A remonstrance was then addressed, or a reply, through the uh, Signor Scipio of Padua, a gentleman in the public service of the Venetian, of the Venetian state, to Dr. Jewell, uh, Bishop of Salisbury, expressing amazement that the English bishops did not even send a letter to excuse their absence, when summoned by the Vice-Regent of Christ for the settlement of religion. Bishop Jewell then sent an elaborate reply. This, and uh, I'll see if I can go back and find that and put it in the show notes as well, uh, Jewell's reply. This act of recusancy, indeed, was bitterly resented by the whole pontifical hierarchy. The English bishops were loudly declared to be contumacious, uh, rude, for not attending the celebrated synod. Dorman, writing to Dean Noel, with wild invective and raillery, uh, declared that they were kept at home by their wives. <laughs> a nice little put down. Dean Noel replied to Dorman, alas, in a tone which showed that he was his match in offensiveness. At this council, it is true, the Irish bishop O'Hart of uh, Acrony asserted that on the score of not being appointed by the Pope, the English prelates were no true bishops. But he added, quote, We refute them by this reason only, for they show that they were called, elected, consecrated, and given mission. End quote. The Spanish bishops present, led by the Bishop of Cadiz, urged that papal confirmation of an episcopate is unnecessary, thereby rejecting the only objection raised by the English prelate aforementioned. Well, that's probably going to take up all the time I have today. So we'll continue next time with uh, Section 3 or Chapter 3 
getting into um, Pope Julius III confirming Anglican orders in his instructions to um, uh, Reginald Pole and uh, some of the other popes that followed Pius and, and Paul and Innocent and so on. Anyway, we'll continue. It's very fascinating, and I uh, hope you will join me. Uh, look down below for the link to the book so you can read along uh, for yourself, and we will see you next time. God bless.